0: Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the paths toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. So, hey, folks, today on the podcast, we've got Jose Recon. Did I pronounce that right?
1: Yeah, that's more or less right.
0: More or less right. Okay. I, anyway, <laughs> um, how are you doing today, Jose?
1: Great. Thank you. Great, great to be great.
0: here. So, Jose, I just wanted to get started. Could you give us kind of a brief background, bio, and just tell us the name of your blog so people know where to go?
1: Yes, so um, I blog at this website called nintil.com, and I blog about um, various topics uh, over the years. More recently, I've been writing about uh, science or the way science works, which is what some people call meta-science. And that's in my corner of the internet, we like to call progress studies. Um, I've also been writing about some specific aspects of one particular kind of science, that is um, longevity research and aging. I've also been writing about that. And in the past, I've, I've written about uh, economic history. In, in particular, I wrote this very long uh, series of blog posts about the Soviet Union and, and its economy.
0: That's great. That's super. And I might end up asking you about longevity. I didn't put anything in the in the outline, but sure. uh, I, I missed that one. Um, so I just wanted to go ahead and get started with, you know, should we fund people yeah. or projects in science? So we had Don Braben on a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, and he was he was talking about scientific freedom and how things have kind of gone wrong. So yeah, it, at a super high level, people projects which are more important. You know, VCs go back and forth on this all the time, and that's for companies. But in science, which are more important?
1: Uh, well, I, I guess the, the lazy answer, although it's kind of correct, is one of those. <laughs> but, right. but to give to, to give, uh, to give a, a bit more context, and maybe we could start with with what Braven is is saying. So he. Um, He, for example, has this notion, this idea of of the Planck Lab. This is Max Planck and other like Einstein and other bright physicists from from the 20th century that uh, largely they were not funded by grants in the modern sense. They were just funded by universities. They had tenure effectively and they could do research on whatever they wanted. They didn't have to justify themselves periodically to to, to maintain their their status. And so they could, uh, as the theory goes, they could think very long term and, and pursue whatever it is that they wanted to without being worried that, oh, in five years I need to produce a piece of research to actually get the next grant and so on and so forth. Um, now, Braven um, doesn't say that all science has to be like that. Uh, and it, it, maybe the, the like initially, it seems that that's what he's saying, but rather he's saying that we should go more in that direction. But Braven is saying that for a specific kind of science, that, that is for breakthrough science or science that it's difficult to evaluate at first, the fun people approach might be uh, the the right one. Um, there might be other reasons why. So the, the key reason for this is that uh, suppose that let's say uh, the next Einstein comes to you and says, "Oh, I just want to f- fumble around and think about you know physics and and what is time, right. what is li- what is light. These very philosophical seeming weird questions." Uh, as in, he doesn't tell you, oh, I'm, I'm going to uh, just fix this equation a little bit, uh, or, or, or I'm going to invent a new cancer drug. And he's like, I just want to think about physics, you know, and maybe we <laughs> will somewhere or not. That will be very strange in, in today's funding environment. And what Braven would say is that um, if, we, if we don't have a place for people like Einstein or people that will be funded, that will be better suited for this fund people model, then we'll be missing out on lots of very interesting uh, ideas. Um, yeah,
0: and it seems like when we talked to Don, his, his big idea was like, used to be you could if you were Max Planck, and you wanted to work on thermodynamics for 20 years, you know, you could get a small amount of money and you could just work on that for a long time. It, and it wasn't. It, in other words, th- there wouldn't be a ton of money, but it would be enough to keep you going and, and kind of pursue your passions. And this is really important for basic research and creativity.
1: Yeah, in, in Planck, so in Planck's own case, my, my last uh, post was incidentally, I, I looked at, at Planck's history. So Planck oh, yeah? is most famous, is most famous for for the idea of the quantization of energy. This is the idea that that energy uh they're like small packets of energy, uh the, the, the famous quanta. Um and this can be used to, to explain, for example, the uh uh the radiation spectrum of a, of a black body at, at a given temperature that otherwise uh, the, the equation doesn't really fit with what assuming that doesn't fit with actual observed uh data so well planck got his phd around 1879 oh wow uh, but <laughs> then Lord. and then and and then he uh, but the thing is if you look at most thing at most uh be uh, reference of, of planck and, and, and things that he published you find that his. Seemingly, his his um, his most famous work, these papers about condition of energy, were from the 1900s. That is indeed. So when when Braven says 20 years, he refers to these 20 years, 20 years from PhD to doing interesting, recognized work. Now right. Planck did Planck did actually publish stuff in between. He was not just like just thinking. He was published. But the stuff he published about is so obscure that no one really paid attention to it, and it's not even in English. It's just that you have to learn German to oh, really? go back to his to his obscure papers. But th- they exist, or they are there. It's just that that if you were to judge Planck, let's say 10 years into his career, you would, um, would you say, oh, this guy is, is not going anywhere. Kind of like the, uh, uh, and yet um, had you done that, you might have missed out on the 10 years after. Actually, he got right. to a very interesting point. <laughs>
0: Absolutely, um, where he actually makes now, real real progress.
1: Yeah, um, now it's, it's, it, it's a, it has to be said that it's not mm-hmm. like he was thinking on the same problem for 20 years. He was exploring various areas up until he found a very interesting problem to work on. So I guess in, in, in the more pessimistic case, the current system would have pushed Planck towards more safe and established areas of research. But you could uh, conceive of, of, of another uh, uh, case where Planck actually gets grants to quote safe work, but on the side, he's actually doing and thinking about the interesting stuff. And indeed, this is what happens. Uh, there's this very interesting blog post that uh, my friend Alexei Guzzi wrote, um, uh, I think it's, uh, that was in his blog post, uh, how life sciences actually work. And he describes this, he he interviewed a bunch of scientists and this is what they do. They they will ask for a grant to do X, but actually they will do something else. They will, yes, they will do the actual thing they were said they would do, but on the side with some money, they will do their thing they actually want to do as as a side thing, which is not ideal uh, in that the ideally system will be aligned with the researcher, but it's it's an interesting workaround for this kind of, if you want to still experiment within the system.
0: Uh (laughs) Right. Well, and it does seem like, you know, I've seen this a lot with my friends. I have a lot of friends that are research scientists and RFP comes out and it's like, well, how can I fit my research into this RFP? You know, there's gotta be a way, right? And if you're, yeah. if you're a good salesperson scientist, you can make that happen. My worry though, is if you're, you're weird and you know, you've got these different ideas, it's hard and you're not, maybe you're not a good salesperson. You get, end up getting cut out. And I'm if the best people, you know, you, you end up kind of specializing. You're either a good salesperson or you're a good scientist. And we've kind of selected out that out of the equation.
1: Yeah, there is this very funny anecdote from the, I think he was the research director at the Rockefeller Foundation, I think perhaps prior around uh, World War II, I don't know if it was before or after, but basically uh, he wrote this brief handbook that he would use to train new analysts coming to the Rockefeller Foundation. The the Rockefeller Foundation is the place that pioneered the fun people, not projects approach. So uh, these days people usually associate the idea with our huge medical institute, but the, yeah. the Rockefeller Foundation was also doing this kind of thing where like very hands-on, lots of interviews, get to know that the researcher actually even going to their ha- to their houses to have dinner with them, just <laughs> going going to their labs that really getting very personal with the scientists to really see if they're actually deserve the, the funding. So one uh, in this book, he, he tells his anecdote of this guy that he tells, it's like very, very bright person, the, the smartest chemist I know, but like he doesn't wear shoes and like he smells weird and he's a very strange person. Like he, he would never collaborate with anyone or, or so on and so forth yeah which which yeah, which is like and it's like and he said like he wouldn't fund this person uh in in meaning meaning that that to some extent science also requires or in some context science requires also, uh, some of this I- even back then some of these salesmanship techniques uh, about unfitting right. into, into the system <laughs> exactly that 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 maybe it maybe it's the case that some people require individualized lifelong funding to their weird thing um i guess one one example would be this: uh, the the surfer physicist Garrett Lisi. He's uh, in Hawaii surfing and doing physics research on his own on this theory of everything he's thinking about. And yeah, that's an, right. Yeah.
0: Interesting. So it seems like it's kind of this interplay. Um, so, so what is the Haldane, Haldane principle? Do you know how to pronounce it? I don't know. I've just read the yes. Wikipedia
1: entry. Yeah, so the, the, Halden, the Halden principle is an idea uh, or, um, or a, probably an, an idea or value to inspire how science should be organized, and, they, and more or less what it states, and this seems to be a foundational principle in scientific organization and funding throughout the world, although these originates gotcha. in the UK, is that scientists should decide what scientists do. Uh, not necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily that, that that I should decide my own research, but my, my peers who judge me and scientific funding should be allocated with input from, from scientists. That is that... That societal needs should not directly uh, impose or constrain the research. This is kind of controversial for various reasons, um, because possibly society is funding scientists. Uh, um, well, lo- lo- lots of science is, is done privately, but a lot of it, especially basic science, is publicly funded by right. taxation. Ultimately, and so ultimately scientists are accountable to society in in what they do. And scientists uh, um, they are not being paid to to have to have fun and think about nature. They are being paid to produce. Uh, this is another interesting philosophical question. What is science for? Uh, what, a, what a society are we asking of scientists? Right. Are we asking them are we asking asking them to produce knowledge or are we asking them to produce uh, useful knowledge that can be used for inventions? Um my, my my bet is that probably um Smarter people or people that are probably closer to making decisions around science are biased towards the science for the sake of science or knowledge for right. the sake of knowledge. I mean, like me personally, I personally like to learn about like, oh, this weird, this galaxy, black like, whole thing. Would right. that be useful for like having faster cars? Probably not, but it's cool to know. Now, do most people care about those things relative to putting the money, let's say, on energy on energy research or, or cancer research? Right. So, so it's 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 kind of yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of tricky, uh, and of course politically it's kind of uh, difficult to say okay we're going to cut your your budget your string theories because we need to put this money on cancer research, and it seems that um, uh, that bargain was uh, um, achieved back then whereby scientists said, okay we're going to do it ourselves just like that uh politicians wouldn't like in that and that's that right. been that's been like a debate back and forth over the years as into to what extent should science, should science uh govern itself or whether science is too important to be left to a scientist and that we should actually uh impose more structure from the outside
0: right and this reminds me i'm i'm in the middle of a book it's by do you know who general groves was
1: yes the, the manhattan project guy
0: he ran the manhattan project so he wrote yeah. a book about the experience which is quite good um, and I really like East Tennessee. So, you know, it's all about how he selected the site and he's, you know, building yeah. all this infrastructure. And it's fascinating to me because he knows, you know, he knows very generally how the science works, but he, the, what he knows, what he really knows is how to get things done. And so, you know, he's shoving these scientists into these, you know, he's like, I know you have these pet projects you love, but that's yeah. not what you're working on anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah. He, he was an um, army guy, right?
0: That's right. He was army Corps of engineers uh, brigadier general. And, um, it's really interesting, like how he selected Oppenheimer, like the, the intelligence agencies didn't want Oppenheimer because he was a socialist. I oh, yeah. was <laughs> like, this is the best guy. I don't care what you say. You know, in the entire book, you know, if there's any takeaway, it's like, wow, there's something about kind of that two in the box leadership team where he, you've got the scientist, you've got this like extremely competent manager and they're both making it work. So you have the technical lead and the man- managerial kind of business side lead. Um, but it is interesting. So what do you think about that? It, should it be scientists yeah. running all of this? Is it or, it, and you know, Manhattan's a special case, right? Because we needed something. Very, there's a clear problem in yes. a short time frame. we needed it on. Um, and we could speed it up like that in the short term. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. The, so I was mentioning earlier that whether, whether or not you want products, funding projects or, or funding uh, people, it depends on what you want. I think if, if what you want is more or less well defined, uh, let's say you want a, a, a nuclear bomb, or let's say you want a human genome, or you want uh, a new, a better microscope, or, or whatnot. Then it seems that it's it's easier to just define milestones and deadlines and and, and do some project management on top of that because uh, ultimately you know the goals. And you, uh, and you know more or less the distance from from you are to the goal and you can assess right. things more more easily and this for example was behind this this idea uh, that uh, you know I don't know if you know Adam Marblestone. Uh, no. Well, so, so he he's working at uh, Schmidt Futures now. He used to work at DeepMind and prior to that he was working uh, with uh, George Church and Ed Boyden on on, um, on mapping the brain and other things. Oh wow! And. And he has this idea of, of, of focused research organizations. The idea here being that there is a missing gap in um, in, in the same way that you could argue that we need more uh, fun people. We need to, uh, for example, uh, the physicist Liz Molin says that, that we only need to fund like 200 of the best physicists and just leave them alone and, and with all those 200 they're like there there aren't enough people that you want to give that funding to but you just set them aside and let them do crazy stuff right. Margaretson says we also need to do that for projects as well we need to find there there is an intermediate scale of projects that is there they are kind of like mini Manhattan projects that could create the benefit science but that cannot be done in the usual academic context, because they either require too much money or they require managerial and or organizational skills that are more common in, let's say, uh, startups or, or uh, regular corporations. Um, I, I guess an example of, of an FRO uh, in the Marlowstone sense would be, well, either the Manhattan Project itself or more recently, Neuralink. Neuralink, ultimately what they did was to take the set of the art across different parts of, uh, of uh, the BCI world and then they package them together and solve a bunch of integration problems they had. Um and that's it. They didn't create any paradigm of BCI or any like the, the objective was clear, the technology was there. It just needed the last push it to go commercial. Um so yeah, so the, the, the idea here is that uh you that there is also, besides funding people, there are also projects that are worth funding and that will also be really good for for science.
0: Gotcha. That's interesting. So it seems like you've got like do you remember the rumsfeld speech he's like the known unknowns known no yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah so i like to think science about science funding like that so there's some things you know we kind of know they exist and we, we could see like an achievable roadmap and then there's things we just don't know much about at all that maybe some curious people are int- interested in and they need to be funded somehow and then there's like you know super concrete things and there's this whole range and you kind of need to make sure each hmm. area is well taken care of, or because if, if you don't have any basic research, you know, eventually, where are you going to get your tech from in real application? I don't know. Does that yeah, make sense?
1: Um, yes, but also vice versa. So there is this idea, this idea in, in the economics of innovation, that's what the, the so-called the linear model. is the idea that you have basic research that fits into applied research, and then from the applied, we get into, into applications. But sometimes it's the case that applied research or tools or engineering is necessary to do the basic research, for example, uh, as an example, oh, if you have a microscope, if you have a microscope, you cannot see it's, it's more things, right? <laughs> so, 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 so for example, it, it could be that to do more basic research, you need, let's say, new datasets, new and uh, new tools to actually go, go back in a loop to to the basic research.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. So it's all, it, it all. There's a
1: ton of interplay.
0: There's a ton of interplay. Yeah,
1: it's a uh, like the conspiracy theorists like to say uh, everything is connected. I think that's. The case. <laughs>
0: That's right. That's right. Um,
1: Yeah. uh, Yeah. There is something. uh, One more thing. I I guess I wanted to say here. Yeah. um, People have and like there are various what we may call philosophical or or conceptual arguments, or or perhaps even with some math, you can do some modeling about funding people or projects. But actually going and and measuring whether or not funding people or projects works, it's extremely difficult. Uh, And I guess in in one of my uh, blog posts on I think the first one on this. Fund people in the project series. I looked at uh, the experience of the Howard huge medical institute, uh, and to, to what extent, um, because in, in 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 the life science research context, uh, the NIH in the US National Institute yeah. of Health, they typically fund concrete proposals. They do so for f- five years, four years ish, and they do it in a relatively impersonal way. You submit your proposal, and then a, a committee reviews the proposal, and then uh, they don't meet you. and They don't know who you are necessarily. Maybe they, yeah. they see your name, but. Whereas the HHMI, they fund you, they actually get personal with you, they meet you in person, they discuss your abroad, abroad. but relatively open-ended research program, and they will fund you for seven years with relatively more or less commitment to another seven years unless you really fuck up. So you get like effectively 14 years of, of support from oh, wow. HHMI to, to actually not just think of the next five years, but to have like a 14 year planning horizon. And, and, um, and this paper tried to see, okay, these researchers that get this award, indeed do, they, they actually do produce better research, but, uh, better, uh, this is another question, better measured by high back citations and things like that, which may or may not correlate with actually being useful. Right. Uh, scientists will cite it. But um, is this because they were really good to begin with?
0: Right, this is crazy. Or is this Selection because bias.
1: Exactly. Or is this because the extra time and budget they get enables them to do those things? Um, the, the authors tried to do some clever econometrics to control for this. I, I think the results are not as clear as they make them seem. And I think that... Um, if I have like one thing to say or one thing to add to the conversation and around science that hasn't been stressed enough, is that we need more experiments. We need we need more randomization. We need uh, foundations to just allocate money at random and and, and YOLO a, a little bit more instead of <laughs> just great. doing doing one thing see exactly how it right. works. I
0: I love that. I love that approach because that seemed does seem really important because we don't know a ton about it. Seems like we don't know a ton about meta science. And, and and I have read deeply enough to know, but it seems like there's a lot more to learn.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think there are various uh, camps and schools of thought within meta science. Some people will say peer review is the worst and and, and it sucks in general. Yeah, like Don's like,
0: oh god, peer review, like you know, take it out back and shoot it, you know. Yeah,
1: nothing yeah. but although I think it, I think it was in your podcast where Don says that uh, for. For a lot of science, peer review can work more or less fine. It is for breakthrough science, that, but some people take it even further. It's like, all oh, peer review, it's kind of not great. Or people will say, no, actually, peer review is fine. Peer review kind of works. Or people will argue, uh, we should fund scientists by lottery. We should just give you money at random because we don't know what works. We don't know what, <laughs> works. No don't, don't, what to do. We, yeah, I see. It's like, there are like various layers of epistemic nihilism <laughs> that you can go into. It's like, it's like we, don't, we, we don't know anything about the world. It's like, it's I, like I mean... And it's like rationally, if if you think that you know nothing, the rational thing to do is a uniform prior. You find everything equally, right? Like, yeah. you don't have you don't have any reason to. It's <laughs> like, but but it's like, I, I guess my, my view is that uh, there are some things that seem at this intuitive more clear than others. So, for example, if we truly believe that we know nothing about uh, who is going to be doing more interesting useful useful science, we would yeah. fund cancer research with the same amount of money as we would fund Egyptologists uh, <laughs> or or like uh, uh, people that are studying ancient Sanskrit. <laughs> uh, which I have nothing, nothing against uh, Sanskrit scholars, but it's just yeah. that it's societally it seems that the people want more more cancer cures and and, and not that's as right. much Sanskrit scholarship.
0: Right, um, and and I think I mean, that's and,
1: common and, sense, um, right? Yes, although although it's it also true that indeed and has happened historically, uh, uh, there was one one interesting discovery in the, in the life sciences that 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 occurred because people were studying uh mummification in in egypt and oh, we were studying at the and stuff and so sure yes in theory yes you can get discovery from the weirdest places that then translate to unexpected places but i expect that if you find chemistry research you will probably find more interesting chemistry findings <laughs> right exactly one would think so right one would hope so um yeah that, that's great so before we
0: move on you know so when you i think your sub tagline on twitter is, is make science great again which i yeah which i love <laughs> uh, are, are there any- any other policy interventions you would suggest you would be thinking about or anything you found that you find interesting uh, that might help? I mean,
1: there is the the experimentation side. Uh, there is also um, um, doing, I guess, more of this Marvellstonian uh, focused research organization kind of things. Uh, I seen uh, or rather doing... Um, so something that, that that maybe it's missing, it's something that looks like a roadmap for a field that's, that says that, let's say, that imagine some kind of website, let's say, maintained by NSF, maintained by NSF or something like that, that says, here's right. where this field stands. Here are the bottlenecks. Here are the open questions. Right. That kind of provides an, an organizing and coherent story for the field to organize itself around. And possibly you could use that either to fund research on the bottlenecks or for people to think more about okay, if we want to go here, let's say mapping the brain, there are all these different avenues that we could pursue and maybe we could see that these two or three ones are being under research, so maybe they're they, they are worth funding more. And the gotcha. example of this might be with uh, with nuclear fusion research that there, there are a bunch of um, open letters to nature published around arguing that funders have been focusing too much money on one or two approaches to fusion that is an ether at... And, at uh, it's like uh just Tokamaks ad, or yeah. something, you know? Like, yes, just yes. Yes, yes, yes Or, tokens, or something like that. And maybe there are seven or eight other projects or approaches to fusion that maybe work. And they were they were, uh, they were were getting more funding back then, but then uh, ITER came in. Uh, it came in partly as, as a US-Soviet Union collaboration thing to, 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 for friendship and stuff, and to throw money behind oh, some science. But maybe we should have funded in a more diverse way uh, back then, or maybe had we had it more visible that actually there were other approaches there, maybe it wouldn't have been the case that if you went to be successfully as a plasma physicist, you had to go into these kind of uh, approaches. Um, yeah, so this, this idea of road mapping and bottlenecks, that's something I think it should be there, some kind of a, um, a website kind of to, to organize science. Uh, another another crazy idea that I've been thinking about, this is this is more on the, because sure, I mean, there, there's like the easy things everyone says, like, oh, you could reduce uh, you could do some lotteries. You could reduce the amount of hours right. spent on grants. Uh, you know, all the boring stuff everyone kind of already knows. <laughs> but you could also pursue a project whereby you try to see to what extent you can transfer genius to other people. Or rather, uh, what is it about about uh, productive labs or important labs that makes them so good? Is it just that oh, they oh, have, they're smart? I mean, it's like even if they have a smart people, uh, plausibly many scientists are sufficiently smart to understand and come up with the ideas. I, I guess as an example, um, I guess in the, in the concept of, let's say, prime factorization, it's simple to multiply to, to, prime, to prime numbers and get a number. It's difficult to break a number into, into, different, into, into different primes. Similarly, it's easy for you or for us to understand relativity, more or less. It's difficult to come up with relativity in the first place. Right. Now, how, But which I guess implying that it's not that you cannot comprehend the theory. It's that, it's that there is some creative spark that's missing. So then the question is, is there a way to... Uh, organize or systematize creativity and breakthrough generation such that uh, not only crazy people in, in interesting labs can do it but it's it's more open to anyone that is like supposed i uh, give you a problem and and then there's this rule set or, or frameworks to think through the problem and that leads you to better insights about what research direction to pursue and it's extremely understudied there is an interesting uh, book on this that is oh, really? fairly uh obscure um uh, what's the title uh it's by this guy called uh, uh Bernstein. The, the title of the book is uh, um, "It's uh, It's 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 Called Discovering, Inventing, Solving Inventing and Solving Problems at the Frontiers of Scientific Knowledge." Uh, the book is out of print, but it talks about this idea It's from uh, 1989. It's, it goes around this idea of uh, thinking in frameworks about science and creativity and, and what makes great researchers great, and to what extent can we learn uh, from that? Uh, so, interesting. Yeah, definitely, That's really interesting. Having, like, having like systematizing creativity that uh because because ultimately i think it's science uh sure like there's like a money constraint and there's yeah. like a research constraint but i think there is an idea constraint as well and i think that unlocking or enabling people to have better ideas uh would be uh great to what extent this can be done we don't know but i, th- I think trying it would be an interesting exercise <laughs> that they would like to, to, to see <laughs> definitely
0: it's at least worth trying right absolutely that's super interesting and i'll put the link to that book in the in the show notes that's Great. Right. So that's actually a, a great kind of a segue into, can you talk a little bit about the great stagnation, your thoughts around it? I know you've written a lot of good stuff on it that I've really yeah. enjoyed.
1: Yeah. So the, I guess, uh, in, introducing the, the idea of the great stagnation, the, the idea here is that if you look at, um, at, at charts uh, of uh, GDP growth and TFP growth, um, I'll explain maybe in a moment what TFP is, but GDP, we, we, I guess we get an idea of what it is, right? It's economic growth in general, economic activity. The growth of that uh, is, is historically has been flat through history. Then it, it, it speeds up greatly through the Industrial Revolution. Right. And then something seemingly happens in 1970. And, and then it slows down. Uh, that is, if you look at median, let's say median income in the US has been growing at a slower pace uh, since then. So that is the great um, stagnation. Now, uh, GDP growth you can decompose it into three components um, in in various economic models. These three components are capital, labor, and the rest. Uh, this literally it's a residual <laughs> in the model. It, yeah, it's that's how it works. You literally <laughs> what you, literally, you, try to GDP, you, try, you try to explain GDP, but you try to explain GDP, but by it's like okay, how much of GDP is because we have more or better uh, more educated people working on the problem? How much of GDP is because we have more capital equipment, more tools, more stuff? and how much is unexplained? And the the theorizing then goes that this unexplained stuff is what economists call total factor productivity or productivity for short. Uh, This is not the same, and um, and TFP has been kind of, again, growing at a slower pace since since, uh, 1970. Now the TFP, emphatically, is not technological uh, innovation. TFP is a grab bag of everything else. So uh, I guess uh, it's, it's a mixture for example um, um, institutional dysfunction and uh, potentially uh, technological slowdown but also sectoral rebalancing so mind you in mind you have two sectors in the economy one yeah. has its productivity growing very fast and another has its productivity growing very slowly the, the, the sector in which you spend uh, in which productivity grows very fast let's say that things become very cheap uh, let's say let's say for, for computers now you have you can have a relatively cheap computer that can, that can do a lot of things so then you spend less on that and just but then the other one relatively becomes more expensive. Um, so then, and gotcha. these sectors, uh, and then basically at the end, your economy looks like the the low, low production growth sector it's bigger than the other one. That in within each sector, productivity rates in this in this experiment is they're growing at the same rate. So it happens that within the economy, the slow growth one is bigger, but because it's gotcha. bigger now, it has a bigger impact. So the so that, so now that slower growth in that bigger sector means that uh, overall you get a slower growth in the economy. And, gotcha. and and the economy of the US and, and other other countries has seen a shift from sectors in which it's easy to increase productivity uh, like manufacturing I think the the ultimate uh, one point trick we, we have to make things productive is the assembly line is to modularize right. and make more of, of, uh, of the thing oh. and yet the sectors that the economy is now more uh, investing more or putting more money on are, are uh, like people or personnel intensive services like healthcare education uh, um. You could even count research to some extent that is, uh, You can possibly, uh, and Tesla seems to be doing. This. You, you can produce cars, let's say, two x faster. You cannot move your arms twice as fast in an assembly line as a human gotcha. being. Like there, there are, there are limits to human performance that uh, that constrain those. There are ways that, that that could be that we could pursue to to our companies. and uh, We could, for example, try to push more on, on automation or process improvements and other things. There are some interesting case types of healthcare in India that this chain of hospitals that they have basically built a surgery assembly line where you have one surgeon doing the same. The same same operation where, over and where, over
0: yeah, and over the expert comes in to do his one part of you know the heart surgery for you know just like a similar, yes it's it's, yeah. it's
1: almost and then and then it goes under the same operation and, and 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 controlling for labor costs this is cheaper than than the u.s model uh of, of health of surgery uh which, and, and, and and this thing is certified by, by a u.s um, uh, healthcare quality uh institution so it's, it's kind of like u.s level of quality so it's a very, very very interesting example that maybe we can link to uh, because it's quite surprising right. that this exists um but also no, the so um, so the, the greatest stagnation in terms of productivity and GDP is real, but from that does not follow that there is certain stagnation or a great stagnation in technology, which is a, a, a different right. one. There, there might be. so my, my but the thing is it's difficult to measure uh, and DFP is not enough because we said it's, it's a grab bag. I think I, I think I, I, I am inclined towards the TF, the TFP nihilism view where I think some people are more or less prone to jump from TFP to technology and I'm not very you know gotcha. that, I, I, I like I like to take individual technologies and look at how they are developing over time. For example, if you Got take more if you take Moore's law, or the uh, increase of efficiency in nuclear reactors, or in uh, steam boilers, or in construction speeds, or uh, any um, or in um, the costs of uh, batteries and solar panels, uh, all the trends you could possibly find do this show a change around 1970. The answer is no. Some it's I think one or two do, but there is no nothing special that happens in 1970 which I think should give some people some pause about whether or not it's technology or not. Um, some people then argue that it's, it's uh, and, and actually I, I don't claim that just because this is the case, it means that uh, science is not slowing down uh, because because it could be that for established technologies, the ones you can actually measure and, and, and put in charts, those are doing fine, but we are generating less breakthroughs. And if we are doing so, um, then ultimately uh, for an established paradigm, you end up exhausting it. As an example, um, for nuclear reactors, uh, one way to increase if the how much power you get out of one, an existing one, is to increase the capacity factor. And uh, this, this is a, um, let's say that, that the nuclear plant generates one, one gigawatt. Um, and if it's active yeah. for an hour, it's one, one gigawatt hour. Um, right. The capacity factor would be if, if you have one gigawatt uh, um, um, plant and you have so many hours in, in a year, how many of those hours is actually on versus maintenance and other stuff. But capacity factors have been going up from like I think 70% back in the year, 70, 60 or originally to like 96% this day. So we have gotten better at operation and efficiency and that alone can squeeze more energy out of the same exact uh, plant. Gotcha. But 100%, it's, it's limited by 100%. Um, right. Um, likewise, for, for a, uh, internal combustion engines, there are some thermodynamical limits uh, called the uh, carbon efficiency as, as to how much uh, efficiency you can get out of this. But then you can paradigm shift and use and have electric motors, which don't right. have, uh, uh, well, I mean, sure, at some level, they're have they thermodynamically constrained, but uh, the constraints are higher. So it's not as much of a, of a problem. Um, so I guess to wrap up, it's um, when, when we, it, it's difficult to, to actually say yes or no to whether or not, there is a technological stagnation. I, and my preferred answer to this is to say uh, Mu uh, or, or, or which is, uh, this requires maybe some explaining. So in, in Zen Buddhism, there is yeah. this, uh, this, this thing known as, as the Mu Koan. Uh, so oh, yeah, uh, yeah Koans are these weird questions in, in, in Zen Buddhism that are, are meant to, to make you reflect about things. So this one goes like this. It goes, a monk asked Jiaoju Kangshun, a Chinese Zen master. Um, and the question was, has a dog Buddha nature or not? <laughs> and, 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 and the master, Jaoju, answer wu, or in Japanese, mu. Now, what does this mean? He, uh, the, so wu, the, the meaning of this word is something like, uh, it can be translate, translated as, as nothingness or emptiness or something like that. But the point is that he's trying to unanswer the question, or rather to say, you should not think about this question or try to say yes or no. You should actually th- focus on other questions, n- namely, um, looking at everything that's broken in, in as in why X field is not being faster and focus on those problems and solving problems there. And I think that is an easier and more tractable and perhaps even more interesting uh, or um, encouraging problem than trying to think what happened in 1970. Maybe right. the answer is that nothing happened. Maybe it's a, a, a bunch of trends that saw it happened that, that got us a lower growth in 1970. Um, but but I say even if we could get TFP looking like the uh, GameStop stock is going vertical, <laughs> even even if, even if we could do that, uh, we could still keep asking the question. Sure, TFP growth is now faster hypothetically than pre- before 1970. Is that enough? The answer is no. There are still problems to be solved. We will still should be looking at fields and see right. why is field X not making progress? They're not going faster. So my 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 call is that instead of thinking about whether or not there is a stagnation in technology, we should just look at each field, see why is it or isn't that broken and try to come up with solutions. It may be that, that the, there is a single uh, cause for all of these, uh, these problems. Some people, for example, um, um Dorado on, on Twitter, he has argued, yeah. uh, and, and Tyler Cowen as well, that it may be, and, and Peter Thiel as well, there's this idea that there is a generalized complacency in society, that, that we in general, we're getting more complacent. And this happens in government and it happens in everyone in general, right? That we are, not, we are not trying as hard as we used to, um, to fix things that we are not sufficiently annoyed at the inefficiencies of the world uh, to to actually right. go and on, on and fix stuff. That might be true. I mean, we, we could discuss to what extent that, that's true. But I say, even if that's true, there are many problems that still remain, um, right. and we should just go go forth and, and tackle them. We should do this uh, road mapping and bottleneck finding exercise, develop plans, and, and execute on them.
0: That, that's a great point, and I I think you're absolutely right in that it, it's less important to figure out you know, why, and and why is often overdetermined, but fixing it is is the most important thing we can try to work on and go case by case, because that's that's the way you can actually solve a problem. It's breaking yeah, it
1: down. Yeah, it's like, like one could see how it is intellectually satisfying to conceptualize and theorize a great stagnation in technology and like think and, and be able to say yes or no. Right. Um, but like some so, some questions are are, Ill, are are some like more ill-posed than than others. Some questions are, are harder to, to actually give a straight answer to, or even maybe the even if you give an answer, the answer is, is going to be kind of vague and subject to lots of assumptions. So, so many assumptions that that people really disagree with your assumptions, and then the question is not really answered because it's so assumption dependent.
0: Right. That makes a lot of sense. That's great. Um, and that's a great segue into, you know, I, I wanted to move a little bit, talk more about econ and you know, what do people most misunderstand about the economy of the Soviet Union? I love reading these posts on your blog (laughs) Uh, because, you know, you just hear about in school, you know, the Soviet Union playing economy and like, that's it. And that's glossed over, right? Um, And you read the Hayek stuff, but, you know, how well did it work? Did it work So the
1: Yeah, so the uh, maybe just to some context about why I wrote these posts, which ended up being a small booklet published by the Adam Smith Institute in the UK. so in, in Spain, where I'm from, there are a bunch of communist parties. We don't, we, we right. don't have one, we have, we have a bunch of them. We, we also have some, some fascist parties. It's, it's it's a very interesting place compared to at yeah. uh, the scene, scene from the from the US optics, it's it's more diverse both ways. And and politically uh, you see some propaganda from, or like uh, well, you could call it reported propaganda depending on what you think from these parties arguing that actually maybe the Soviet Union was not as bad well as, as, as you see, right. but, but here's a twist. They will, uh, um, back then, uh, they had this video showing that the USSR was kind of great, but yeah. they, used data, they used data from sources like the United Nations or the CIA. They did not use Soviet data because people was like, oh, you know, the Soviets were kind of playing with the books and like, right. and, and that's an interesting thing, right? Because you'd think that the United Nations and the CIA of all people would have incentives, incentives to get it right. Yeah. So then, so then I thought, is it real or is it is there something going on here, strange going on here? So that was the, the starting point. Now, when people think about the USSR, there are thing, two or three things that, that come to mind. One, one, I guess, is the it was a planned economy, meaning that uh, um, by and large, the, the economy, uh, not 100% of the economy, but most of the economy was planned by the state. Uh, there were the reverse factories, and, and they had these very galaxy-brained uh, engineers trying to, <laughs> trying to do uh, optimization problems to optimally allocate resources uh, across uh, right. all of these industries. Uh, there's a very really fun book called uh, Red Plenty that kind of goes over uh, how some of these uh, works. Uh, yeah, my sister got me that
0: for it, Christmas. I haven't gotten you know, into it yet, but
1: she said it was really it's really good. It's a really fun read. There, there was this small private market called Rhinoc. Uh, yeah. I'm completely butchering the, the Russian pronunciation, but they there is that people could trade, you know, like like uh, like farm products, like very basic stuff. Uh, gotcha. maybe if you could, like, if um, if after, after queuing for some time, you couldn't buy like meat, you could go to the farmer and you could. There's a small amount of market but by and large it was it was a planned economy and and and, and also um so the, it was a planned economy after um this is largely after stalin's time okay uh which i can lead to, to a second point soviet union people come to mind oh stalin right stalin right, the right. gulags the 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 famines the hold yeah uh, stalin um so my my life of the soviet union focuses on the soviet union at, at its best that is on the post-stalin era gotcha. and the reason for this is that if we can show that the USSR was not so great at its best, then by implication at its worst was like even worse. Right. And um, and indeed, well, I, regarding um, food, food uh, I guess the, the first interesting thing that I found out is that well, first uh, there were no uh, uh, there were no food scarcity in the Soviet Union after I think 1956 or so. I think the, the idea of the of these people starving that that's that's just true, but it happened during the earlier stages of the USSR. After that, they didn't have really. Didn't really struggle as much with uh, with that. After after Stalin, they, that, that is. Um, but then they, that's maybe that's reason. It's like okay, well, I mean, maybe it, it's not, it was not North Korea. It's, it's a little bit better than North Korea, right. still. Uh, but then you wonder um, if you look at the, at the United Nations. Uh, there's this uh, this uh, entity within the UN called uh, the Food and Agriculture Organization, the F-FAO, FAO. And if you look at, they have this time series for calories per person they consumed. Oh, interesting! And seemingly the Soviets were eating more calories than the US, which seems difficult given the US uh, people like to eat a lot of calories right. and you know get. Uh, good at it. Yeah, the US is really good at like all 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 that very nice food, uh, all right. the, all the, all that free all that all that nice freedom. Yeah, um, exactly. But um, at first, at first, I thought, well, might it be because well, Russia is colder than the US. Maybe they need more food for, you know, because it's colder. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's, or maybe I thought, well, the, the economy is, is less advanced. Maybe that they're doing more hard manual labor. So maybe, they, but I, I tried to look for some comparisons. Uh, that didn't seem to be true. Uh, you look at, at Finland, you look at uh, other countries, the, the food consumption was still very high, surprisingly. Interesting. So then I, so then I thought, okay, where does the d- data came from? Where did the FIO get this right. data? <laughs> Could, could it be that it was like Soviet data that was cooked or something? Yeah. Or, I was was what, the area of this data? So, so then I got into, into this whole like rabbit hole of uh, of this very niche literature of people trying to do calculations <laughs> based on like how much the Soviet said they produced and then trying to adjust for like um, um, spoilage from the farm to to, to to the actual people consuming it and and then trying to calculate how many calories are in a Soviet potato and things like that. That's awesome. Because, because apparently it's different potato has a different <laughs> amount of calories and things like that right. and, and so on. And I guess, like TLDR, the where this goes is that the the FAO used uh, so they took the I guess also for context Soviet data that was published uh, after more or less after Stalin or even during the later USSR. It's more or less or is taken today to be relatively uh, uncooked. It's raw and it's, and it's it's organic. It's it's not uh, adulterated. <laughs> <laughs> so we can more or less we can more or less trust the data actually. Um, oh wow! Um, but. Um, the FAO, uh, well, at the same time, so the, the Soviets themselves, they have, they have their own estimates of how many calories they were actually consuming. So there is this entity called uh, Goskomstat. This is the, like a Soviet statistics agency. And their data showed that the Soviets were eating fewer calories compared to the US. So, so they, they had their own set of coefficients to, um, to convert from Soviet food to like American, to like uh, like standardized calories. But the FAO said we're not going to said, we're going to trust the their food figures, but not their their, their conversion coefficients. So they took oh, the kilograms of things they were eating and used a standardized average coefficients that they use for other countries. And apply them to the U.S. And, and if you dig into that report, they say this kind of wishy-washy. But you know, we have we had to do something, and like here, here we go. So yeah. that's what it, <laughs> that's where that data came from. It's, it's like if you it's, oh, wow. it's deeply buried into it. I mean, it's like if you if you just plot it, if you go to your website and plot it, it looks like any other line. It, it yeah. looks like like it's line in a graph. It's the same line as any other. But it's each of these lines telling a story. It's it's coming from somewhere. It's coming from some random guys in the seventies arguing about potatoes and calories.
0: Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. That's awesome. That's really cool. Just imagine you're one of these guys and this is what you're working on. You're figuring out these Soviet <laughs> yeah. potatoes. <and laughs> yeah, that's, that, awesome. that,
1: that's, that's kind of the, the very historical mystery of figuring out uh, how many calories you're actually consuming. Um, another one was finding out claims around that some people saying that the Soviet Union was actually more efficient than the US. Uh, Interesting. Efficiency. Yeah. Um, and then again, this, this involves lots well, of very obscure and niche a, a economics, but the, the TLDR yeah. here boils down to what do people mean by efficiency? Gotcha. Now there is there is one definition of efficiency which some people call a static efficiency which is if I give you a bunch of machines some people um, yeah and then you can you can combine them and organize them think of a whole economy in different ways um, what's the, you are optimally statically efficient if everything everything is allocated to their best uh, use that is uh that there is no rearrangement of, of resources such that as a whole you are you are producing more that's the meaning of static efficiency and um, dynamic efficiency uh, so th- that is. Um, this, this concept in economics called the, um, uh, what's name? It's the PPF, the, uh, the, the production possibility frontier. So I guess uh, you could see, if you imagine an economy that can produce, let's say uh, cannons or, right. you know, like, but, or like butter and, and you can choose between both, there is a, there is a curve, but um, it's like, that's kind that determines an exchange ratio uh, between both and you could decide how much you want of each. But the point is that there's a curve of, of the optimality that you can choose different combinations of outputs and all of them are optimal. And there is a set of points inside this curve that or this surface that are not optimal. So that so that gotcha. That's that if, if, you, if you rearrange the, the economy, you could produce more of more of everything kind of if you're in that point. Um so um so the the dynamic efficiency, on the other hand, dynamic efficiency would be that you that over time you're actually growing this uh production possibility frontier that actually you're able to produce more in general got it and and the research that seems to show that indeed the soviet union was very statically efficient
0: interesting
1: seems surprising. seems surprising at first and and when when and whereas at the same time they were their dynamic efficiency was low and and overall their what the, the productivity that we talked about in the, in the in the earlier sense this tfp that's like a residual of of the of gdp right. that was that was slow the the rate of growth tfp was, was going to flow the explanation was that it's it's an interesting quirk of what happens what happens is an economy is if as an economy your technology doesn't improve very fast you get good at using what you have oh you have to use all stuff right <laughs> yeah i mean i think if 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 you if you use the same I don't know, like machines over and over for 20 years, you get good at using them and, and, right. and how everything should be allocated. There is no disruption going on that will force you to change and rearrange things. You can get good at optimizing the here and now instead of uh, be constantly changing things. So indeed there seems to be some inverse correlation between the more dynamically efficient you are, the less time there is for the economy to adapt and settle to a statically efficient allocation of resources. Got so it. ironically, ironically, because they were not that innovative, they were statically efficient. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's the, and it's like if you just see the claim uh, on its own freestanding, the USSR was more more efficient asterisk, aesthetically than the US. <laughs> it, it sounds kind of weird, and it seems like like a scoring point for the USSR, whereas actually, right. it has to be put in its own context as to where that efficiency was actually coming from, which is not very flattering to the US, USSR. Gotcha. Um, that, yeah, that's um, that, that's really yeah.
0: interesting, and, and I want to ask you this this question. I, I just had this thought. You know, what do lay people most misunderstand about the economy of the Soviet Union? You know, what would be your takeaway after doing all this research?
1: Um,
0: Just in the discourse, you know?
1: I mean, in, in, in the discourse, if it's like one thing, it's not necessarily the economy, but it's the USSR as a whole. I think. if you ask people, what was bad? Why was the USSR a problem? Right. Or, or, or what what did, they, what did they do wrong? People will talk about politi- uh, political prosecution and gulags and Stalin. Right. And, and those things. And they will maybe it's like... Uh, not think much about the, the idea or, or the problems with it, with a planned economy in the first place um on the other hand perhaps like even people that uh some someone was like oh it was a planned economy of course that had to collapse uh, uh of course it didn't work i mean it's like it it kind of worked in the, in the sense that that Russia was a very poor country Russia was uh, uh, basically a, a feudal agricultural right. economy that then Stalin took into something that could actually defeat the, defeat the Germans at, at World War two uh, which is it, it's something it's I impressive. Mean, it's a it doesn't mean that it could ha- it couldn't have been achieved uh, by other means um, and there is some research on that I think what would have happened had uh, Russia became a capitalist country instead of uh, without having to go into communism um, um, but yeah the, 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 there is something to that as well um although even then uh, we could say that the one reason why they could grow so fast is that again going going back to the um, to the uh, this framework of thinking about growth you have uh, you have people capital and productivity uh the so- Soviets basically uh, there is this idea of, of forced savings that is that, that you can force more people you can artificially restrict consumption when you have a planned economy you can force people not to consume and to save more um which is what they did, and then put all that into investment. You can, it's just like, no, no more, uh, like, fancy organic humus for you. And you're going right. to, to put this into making steel and concrete to make more factories and make more stuff. Gotcha. And that's how they got a lot of growth. Uh, but the thing is that there's, on, there's only so much steel and concrete you can manufacture to make more steel and concrete factories. There's only so much investment. The, the, the share of investment that you, USSR GDP was kind of, uh, it was not, as, not that high, but even then, they were throwing at, at investment way more than the U.S. I think they were 30 or, or 35% of all the economy was investment. In the U.S. right now, it might be like 20-something percent, which means that if you look at consumption, sorry, um, if you also couple this with the fact that the USSR when trying to match the US military, they were spending, I think, twice as, as percent of GDP in military compared to the US uh, because they were a smaller economy. If, if, you, if you take the investment and this military expenditures uh, during the Cold War, you end up with that actually consumption as in how much people are actually consuming was, is way less than that you would expect from just looking at GDP uh, directly.
0: Gotcha. Very, very interesting. Very interesting. So I, I wanted to scoot now and talk about Cuba. So, you know, high human development index in Cuba, is this a mirage? Is this a real effect? What do you think?
1: Yeah, so, so I guess first, which should, should define what the HDI is, the Human Development Index. So this is an this is an index that it's basically a geometric mean. This is basically taking taking the, the cubic root over the multiplication of three three things. These three things being indices of life expectancy, GDP and years of education. I mean, on average, how many years do the people in the gate in uh, of education? Now, if, at, at least a few years ago, if you looked at, uh, well, this is this elaborated by the UN, so it's not like it's done by some shady uh, <laughs> right. communist cabal. It's something <laughs> yeah. that seems kind of legit. Yeah. Uh, and this is something that people will uh, typically use as an indicator to compare how well different countries are doing uh, as, as kind of like a, all things considered a scorecard under the premise that well, maybe some countries have high GDP just because they have oil or something. So you want to consider other things other than GDP. Right. Now, the extent to which this weighting of these things, throwing them in there, it's reasonable. That's perhaps somewhat questionable, but it's an index that is it's out there. Um, now, three or four years ago, if you looked at the these HDIs for Latin America, Cuba was the second highest. Which uh, Seems surprising given that Cuba yeah. has an interesting political system. Absolutely. That is, it's, uh, Yeah. And they wonder, Well, where, where is it coming from? Um, yeah. Is it that is it that it kind of works? Is it that they have they have something that we don't know about healthcare and and education yeah. and, and economic growth? Well, um, my I guess if, if you have like two, like I think two useful frameworks that we have when thinking about the economics in general is what they call thinking thinking in time and space. That is, take the country and compare it with other countries around it, and then take the uh-huh. country and think of the country in uh, across time. Um, so in in this case, like okay. Uh, how do countries around Cuba doing, how hard are they doing? And also Cuba itself, prior to the revolution, uh, which was in in uh, in uh, 1959, yeah. how was it doing? Could it be that actually it began in a, it was actually a very nice place to begin with and then it kind of right. just cruised along? Yeah, um, and, got some uh, momentum. Yeah, and, and indeed that seems to be the case for, for uh, education and, and, and lifespan, um, that even back, back prior to the revolution, they were already scoring extremely high on these metrics. Uh, These might be due to a variety of, uh, of factors. It, it might be, it might be culture. I guess in, in, in the same sense, for example, if you look at life expectancy of uh, Hispanics in the in the US, if you compare, um, if you compare, let's say, uh, uh, non-Hispanic whites with Hispanics in the US, Hispanics are poorer than the average American, but Hispanics live longer than whites. Uh, oh, even I think the, I think even even more than the richest of richest of, of whites. Now, why is this? Uh, People are oh, It's about. It's like, how could it be, given that they have uh, worse healthcare or whatever, right, like, right of access or that yeah, ensure whatever? How could this be? So some people argue that maybe it's something about culture, about that maybe it's a combination of better diet and exercise and more better community and family relations. Who knows? But, but it might be that something like like that may also be behind um, Cuba. Uh, but gotcha. but in, in any in any case, if you if you take for example uh, something I did, which is to take okay 1955 prior to the revolution, you take all these indicators. Uh, for, for cuba and a bunch of other countries around it and then you plot um and then you take the same indicators um in I think 2013 or or in some, some recent year and then you see um i mean um, of course countries that started uh from a higher point uh, are even to date more or less they have retained that that very high standard of, uh, of living ish in terms of like this education and, and lifespan and if you look at cuba you see like does cuba look special in these charts right or does it come or less fall in line and it largely largely falls in line um Got to an extent so that that could be used to explain um, healthcare, sorry, uh, lifespan and, uh, and and years years of education, but there are other things that are not, are not explained by that. Uh, one is one would be uh, GDP, and, and another one here is a bit of an anecdote. Um, another one, one thing that in, in poor countries drugs I think lifespan down is uh, infant mortality got it it's like um he historically lifespan ha- lifespan has been relatively low because uh there was, there was very high child mortality uh right. like early on so cuba as it happens th- that due to the way they do their statistics they do not count deaths uh between oh, a queen, between birth and a, f- and a few days they don't count
0: gotcha so in in their,
1: yeah in the calculations is this they are not a, they don't appear there gotcha um, yeah, yeah, so that's that's kind of like a, an interesting, which again, if you look at, at a table with data, you, you would think that each number is coming from the, in the, the same place, but not quite. There, there are, there are there, again, there's stories behind each number, like going back to the right. uh, before. Um, GDP was also a tricky one. So GDP, um, conceptually, it's like, it's like a grab bag of all the economic activity in an economy. But to compare GDP, let's say, if, if you take, I guess, this is more recent debate, to compare the GDP between two countries, what did you do? And uh, let's say the GDP of Cuba and the GDP of the U.S. You could, put in, you could take, let's say, the GDP of Cuba in pesos, the, the currency, and right. then convert it to an exchange rate to dollars and compare dollars, uh, let's say, the US GDP in, uh, in dollars to Cuban GDP in dollars and compare them. Uh, that's OK-ish, but you can do better than that, um, which is why people use this approach that's called uh, purchasing power parity. Uh, philosophically, the, the idea of this is that uh, one um, one dollar or whatever one dollar is in pesos doesn't buy you the same amount of stuff. Or to put it in in, in a different sense, a uh, hundred thousand dollars is the same uh, in San Francisco and it's the same right. in the middle of uh, of Texas, but you don't have the same life. Right. Exactly. In, in San Francisco, you, you will share a room uh, and you will pay <laughs> a lot of money, whereas in in Texas, you will have a very nice house with uh, right. a pool and three bedrooms for the same exactly. amount. Yep. So. So people try to look at individual prices within each of these economies and try to use those to make corrections to make to see how they're how rich they actually are, how much they can these economies actually can quote buy with all this GDP. And um, this again, this is philosophically uh, more difficult to do than just doing using exchange rates. And and because of these uh, methodological problems, you again find very of obscure conceptual disputes about what's the best way of doing this. So right. Again, back then, looking at, at this HDI, uh, um, looking at, at the GDP that was behind the number, I was like, okay, well, where does the G- GDP number is coming from? So then you go into this very old, re- well, not at all. This report from the World Development Bank that has um, that they were estimating, uh, they were they were explaining the methodology for comparing prices and applying these corrections to. Um, to, to, to the GDP. And they said, you know, for, for Cuba, we are offering this number, but, but don't take it too seriously because we haven't really settled on a good way. Like we cannot, right. it's a plan, it's, it's a planned economy that are prices that they're not as comparable as they are. in the market <laughs> economy, so we have to do some more corrections. Here's a preliminary figure, but don't trust it too much. What oh, did the United Nations do is like, ah, yeah, let's put the number in the HDI. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, it's like I mean they learn. I mean they. I think the HDI changed um, recently. I think now instead of being the second highest, now it might be the seventh or the ninth. So it just went down gotcha. uh, to a, where, where I think it's, it's still high, right? it's not like it's super low. But again, uh, it's it's high partly because of uh, um, uh, of this uh, pre-existing state of healthcare and and um, and, uh, and education. But yeah, so that, that, that's kind of the, another case where one wants to look behind the story that's 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 in the data. That that just because it's on a table and it's sits with everything else doesn't mean it's as reliable as the other gotcha. piece of data. And it was, it was kind of like like a fun um, detective story to just go right. figuring out where all these numbers coming are coming from and seeing all these debates of people arguing about, bickering about all these obscure figures. Uh, right.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. No, that's really interesting, and it, it, it's a reminder you've always got to be careful. Right. <laughs> yeah. You always got to be careful. Interesting. Uh, I wanted to move on a little bit now. So last week on the podcast, we talked to Freddie DeBoer. Have you ever read his blog, his book, Cult of um, Smart?
1: I have not, but I've, I think I've heard a podcast with him where more or less he outlines the ideas behind the, the book.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's a pretty interesting guy. Anyway, we talked about direct instruction and uh, Bloom's two sigma problem. Could you just describe it and, um, you know, how robust do you think it is?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, Bloom's two sigma problem. Uh, this idea that this this, um, this psychologist, educational psychologist uh, uh, Bloom, that found that he was trying to find good ways of of, uh, of improving education, of, of teaching in general. How how do you get kids, uh, not only kids uh, at all levels, to learn more and better? And he found that uh, one th- the best thing that you could do is tutoring, one to one, individualized tutoring, having one person that understands how you think and what you know and can give you individualized feedback. Um, and, and in your homework and, and so on and so forth. Right. This leads to uh, looking at test scores and exams to a two sigma improvement. And two, two, two sigma here is two, two standard deviations, which we can just interpret as a very large effect. can just like right. two sigmas, we can just take that to be as the big, big effect problem. Exactly. Um, the, it's a big, big effect problem because in education research, if you look at randomized controlled trials of various interventions that people have tried, most of them, their effect size is close to zero.
0: 90, yep, it's very difficult.
1: It's very difficult to improve education, and so the Bloom to Sigma problem is very interesting in that it seems to show there is something that, that seemingly in, increases education a lot, um, and so that yeah, this that as measured by scores. Now Bloom, he, he he said like, okay, can we replicate this two Sigma um, that we get from tutoring in an in a scalable way? Because you know, uh, giving everyone a personal tutor is very expensive. Right? Can we do this in a cheaper way? So that was the two Sigma problem, and he proposed that we could do it with um, various combinations of techniques. I think the most famous one is something called mastery learning, which is uh, a technique whereby you really hammer down on concepts until they're really properly acquired. And only then you build on and teach more. I guess as an example would be if you're teaching, let's say, uh, summation and then multiplication, you don't just go th- go through and then if, if someone doesn't really get how to do nine pl- nine, nine plus line, you just right. keep going. You don't care. With mastery learning, you stop. And test and test and test and teach and test until it's it's mastered and only then you move on. The Got idea it. being that when concepts are not solid, they're difficult to then um, build on. Uh, acquire, build yeah, on. build on and acquire. So it's less efficient and and, and people fall behind and and so on. So um, I think the, the the headline two sigma for tutoring uh, there may be something there. Maybe it's not two sigma. Maybe it's one point six. Maybe it's one point five. But definitely uh, the idea that tutoring can greatly improve outcomes is it's real. Uh, that's definitely there. Mastery learning uh, as well, I think, you can, uh, again, not to signal, but to some extent, yes, it, it, it also not works. Um, the the way in, in which works, uh, or there are various channels through which it could work. Uh, one, one is simply repeated exposure to, to the same information over and over. This is the, the uh, space, space repetition effect. And this is when when you have, for example, flashcards to learn a new language, where you basically uh, you ask yourself, OK, this is a word, uh, what does it mean? And then if you, if you failed, you will see this card more often, and, and, and so on. It. Um, another another way in which this could work is something called the z- testing effect, which is merely by testing you, even if you I even if I don't give you the answer, that in itself apparently helps you remember. I mean, think being forced to, to to ask yourself an answer for yourself apparently helps retention as well. Right. <laughs> um and probably just as conceptually, this, this idea, the idea of building on solid knowledge uh helps. So I guess because uh, cognitively, if I give you a concept you don't understand that maybe that you may try to be to ground it in other things, but if those things are shaky, you it's difficult to know where it fits, and maybe you, you don't really acquire the or your brain will be like, Oh, this thing doesn't really make sense, so I just throw it away, right? Um, and I just keep going, and you don't really learn as, as as much. Um, there are some suggestions to be some people have suggested using uh software methods to, to achieve these these effects. Uh, famously, there was this uh program that DARPA funded. That um, it's called the digital tutor uh, project, and basically it was in the context of training U.S. Navy IT technicians. Uh, yeah, this uh, the to, to show it works not just in a high school setting or or, right. or like K twelve, and they showed like very impressive effects. Uh, they showed that the the students in a, i think in half the time that the, the, the regular course takes were achieving scores way higher than anything that the regularly taught students could achieve. Just kind of kind of cool, given that this is software which means that maybe it can be scaled, that maybe you could greatly increase uh, the efficiency of of education, uh, not uh, in in general, uh, uh, across across the entire country, just with software. Software you you, do, it may be difficult, and actually in this literature of of doing it in software, it's a common theme that it's very difficult to program this uh, this software because you need both knowledge about, uh, you need to build a system that can model the student, what they know, how they learn, how, have a bank of questions and, and to generate the right questions that they can um, um, fill in the, the, the gaps they have and also you need domain experts about math or physics or whatever right. to actually build in that knowledge uh, but but difficult as it might be to do it once uh, because ultimately the knowledge that's taught in many contexts it's more or less relatively uh, stable and so you could plausibly benefit from from that. Uh, direct instruction, I know you mentioned that there is direct instructions that direct instruction is a technique Uh, a curriculum technique typically uh, practiced in the in a special education context for for kids with uh, with mental uh, disabilities um, that uh, have slower rate of learning and the idea here is um, maybe uh, taking us as the back first to to, to explain if we could say that there is a a philosophy of, of education that one some people may think of as conservative in that the teacher knows and the student Basically, the, the student is a vessel that has to be filled with knowledge by the teacher. Gotcha. Right. It's, it's, it's unidirectional. Um, a more what we call progressive uh, view of education, is a, it's, it's a view that sounds like the teacher and the student learn together, that the teacher is a guide that the student uses uh, to progress through knowledge, uh, perhaps at their own pace, right. and, in, and in some cases to explore areas of their own interest um, in, in, a, in a more in a less, quote, authoritarian uh, way. Dirty instruction is the extreme version of the first approach, in which you have uh, a strong emphasis on things like road memorization, repetition. Uh, if there are videos of the construction on YouTube, and it looks uh, um, initially a bit like, like a cult. So you'd <laughs> right. so you have like just, just saying, 9 nine times 9 is 81. The case is like, 9 times 9 is 81. Right. 1 That's plus right. 1 is 2. 1 plus 1 is 2. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it's it, 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 it seems very weird. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but then it's like, well, ultimately, does it work? Uh, that's the, the question. So the, the direct instruction guys, they, they seem to be very interested in seeing if it works or not, as in that they, yeah. they try to, when the curriculum, when the, their concept gets implemented, they try to see how the school that using it does. And they, they try to use that knowledge to then improve the direct instruction method and, yeah. and then send that knowledge to other. Uh, I guess in the same way that Tesla can gather video from all the Tesla cars and use, use that video to improve right. all the Tesla's, the direct instruction institute, they try to use knowledge when they deploy the AI to improve the the method. Um, So various tests that are around for for the I actually, I think the ultimate, the evidence seems to show that it seems to work. And I mean, especially for the special needs uh, case that works relatively well there. Um, And it works probably somewhat better than, quote, this more carefree uh, education method, I guess. But then there's some debate as to um, in which way it works, right, because um, I guess, it's easy to show that it works if you care about if, if education is about learning a bunch of facts wow. um, and you're gonna you're gonna tested on those facts thing. If you test that, I think that education is more likely to win. But then some people argue, oh, but what about creativity? And others <laughs> like other others think that are more difficult to test. Uh, it's they're difficult to measure indeed. And, um, and and who knows. But if um if you have like a more limited set of concepts, that may may well work. I think the and and a reason why the reconstruction um, hasn't been... Actually, I think the, the U.S. did uh, years past, like, decades ago, one uh, nationwide huge trial of all these different education systems all the way from the reconstruction to literally oh, wow. letting kids be kids and do whatever they want. Uh, I don't know I the name of this. Uh, it's on my uh, on my blog. There's needle.com slash uh, Bloom Sigma. And actually, it works, assuming that, that this reconstruction thing seems to work. Um, now, a reason why... Maybe this has not been um, adopted. Might be that culturally uh, or politi- politically, politically, ideologically, or on, from a values point of view, the reconstruction totally is everything. Er, is, is everything teachers stand against? Like this idea, I guess, the, the, their self-image. They don't want to be almost robots or reduced to just following a script. Because ultimately, right. I think the reconstruction that they. they some teachers are better than others, they will try to get good teachers to write a script of what good teachers do okay. and how they act. And then, and then like, like actors, they will try to get teachers to act like the best Copyright. teachers that they have found. The idea being that, that acting like a good teacher is sufficient to be a, a good teacher. Um, now, some teachers find that this is uh, dehumanizing to some extent that right. being forced to to just play act and um, or like uh, LARP, uh, <laughs> <laughs> literally um, uh, being a teacher and just following this very rigid script. And they just don't like it. They, they don't right. like uh, as a job uh, doing that. This um, commission of that, plus the philosophy underlying the eye, they, this idea that they are just like throwing knowledge at kids. They right. don't like that concept. They like, and I guess like at some level, it kind of sounds nice in some way. This idea that you're going to just guide them, and, they, and right. you are you're you their partner. You are, you are you are not here, and they are down there. You are more of an equal There's to no them. No hierarchy. Yeah, it's it, kind i of heartwarming. I yeah, I guess some people find that structure appealing or uh, are, are very satisfying to think in, of education in, in those egalitarian uh, terms but it doesn't seem to work I think that <laughs> exactly. that that's that that's so criteria. so it hap- I think as so it happens that ultimately uh, there is a difference between uh doing what you think seems okay or satisfying to you and and, and, and doing what works and and exactly. um, and it's yeah, and then it's like ultimate. It's I guess the meta question would be uh, at which level in the in the in the in the policy uh, in education policy hierarchy would you have to intervene such that such to to get this, uh, or would the would the teachers' unions just, just rebel against you and it is completely say, possible no. to do? Uh, right. I
0: don't know. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> tough to tell. That's that's really interesting. So I had one final line of questioning, and I, I want to ask you about longevity, longevity research. So it seems like it's it's a field which is uh, very prone to getting. You know shall we say quacks that you know it, it's yeah. very muddy, can be very muddy. So where do you think we are right now, like as of today, as of you know February 10th, 2021, in aging yeah, research?
1: So yeah, so I guess first we don't quite understand or rather the the broad question of what is aging that remains uh sadly unsolved. Um there gotcha. there's some there's some theories that I think they are better than the old theories. Um so for example, back a few years ago, people would talk about telomeres, for example, right, that was or big thing. Or, or antioxidants, I think if you remember a, f- a few years ago, everything was all about the antioxidants, right? Yeah. Um, um, now those things have, have felt out of the fashion and people are thinking more about uh, the the epigenome, for example, or um, or accumulation of damage um, or, or things like that. There are like various schools of thought about, uh, about aging, but I guess ultimately we know uh, we know that that aging can be the things we don't know that aging can be regulated. That is that, that we, it's not fixed that you can take a worm, let's say, or a fly or a, or a mouse or a mouse, and you can like play with these genes and make gotcha. it live um, in, in worms 10 X longer, 10 times longer um, just by I think uh, knocking out or just by inactivating two genes. You can make a worm live 10 times longer in mice. I think this is, is up to 50% longer than the regular lifespan, which is not bad. Yeah. And, in monkeys which is the closest to us i think was like maybe 10 percent increase in, in lifespan in, gotcha. in this case the, the technique they used was um which again the 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 most conserved and better than under, the best understood intervention within with longevity the, the thing that that you see that has the same mechanisms in yeast, in flies in worms in mice and in humans uh, well, yeah. humans we assume because we have in monkeys is those that centered around the so-called uh, uh nutrient sensing pathways these are uh um, routes or like uh, sets of, uh, of proteins that, that work together that detect nutrient availability that is uh, basically when you're when you are starving they they trigger responses such that ultimately you, uh, you end up uh, going to some kind of maintenance mode that makes you live longer and this right. this mechanism seems to be very well uh, conserved um, throughout the life in general um, and and, and there is some evolutionary theorizing as to why is this is the case in the first place. I think this is this is the, the logic behind, for example, fasting. Uh, it's it's this uh, these uh, these mechanisms. Um, gotcha. Um, and so that's that's one. Uh, there is there are some drugs that uh, have been proposed that can directly mimic uh, what what uh, because ultimately, caloric restriction. I think proper caloric restriction can be uh, mentally uh, exhausting. <laughs> Very you difficult. Feel right, you right. feel cold. You feel hungry all the time. So, right. So, there is this drug called rapamycin, that also seems to extend lifespan in, 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 um, in, 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 in everything. So if you get rapamycin to something, it just, everything gets better. Like and in clinical trials in mice, <laughs> like Alzheimer's and cancer, everything seems to improve. It's kind of like, which I guess the, the, if there is something that people would more or less point as to what is aging, aging is a set of things, how they connect to each other. It's not that matter But a set of things that if you touch, if that affect everything else, more or less that, Got it. I guess, I guess, for example, if you could, um, um, I guess um, 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 the, the the cause of, of let's say cardiovascular disease is that the accumulation of uh, cholesterol or excess cholesterol in, in your arteries, it clogs your arteries and so forth. Um, um, but that's just there. I cholesterol is not accumulating in your in your column or in your brain. Right. Uh, but aging the, the so it's it's very limited in its scope to the to to one system. But aging seems to be the same mechanisms that can regulate. Uh, Maintenance and repair, damage response everywhere in in all cells. Uh, that's that's one of way one way of thinking about uh, aging. There is, uh, I guess, one of the interesting new developments in just like measuring uh, measuring aging. Uh, that is, um, can we can we predict uh, from uh, I guess if you give me let's say a blood sample, can you predict how old the person is? Uh, can you rather can you predict how long they have to live? Uh, oh man! So this is this is the theory behind the so called uh, methylation or epigenetic clocks right he uh, said that he that, said that we have this we have dna and then um in, in in the dna there are these uh these uh small um methyl so um methyl uh, it's basically uh, one carbon three hydrogens yeah uh, if, you ha- if you have one more for it will be methane that methyl is for three that gets attached to the dna and that's uh, that's a methylation mark it can be on or off in one given site it's like zero one kind of gotcha and and if you look if you sequence uh if you look at, at these methylation patterns in this case, you take, from, you take them from T cells in, in blood, typically. If you look at this um, and you train um, um, very, very simple or linear regression models to predict uh, remaining, remaining lifespan or, or actual chronological age, you can do a decent job. Uh, and I guess an, an, an example of how decent this job is, well, um, suppose that I could choose between, I um, might want to predict your, your, your lifespan. And I can yeah. choose between asking you two questions. I can ask you, do you smoke or not? And, or I can ask you, give me your blood. I, I want to see your DNA clock. I I would rather see your blood. <laughs> That's the. Uh, oh, really? The, interesting. The, this this clocks predict more than 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 smoking non-smoking status. Oh wow! Which is quite interesting because then they mean, okay, these these methylation marks in the DNA in these cells, what do they mean? Uh, there there are three schools of thought here that are currently uh, they're dishing out exactly to what extent each of them are right there is there, there is some interesting work doing being done by morgan levine at Yale on figuring out what the clocks mean basically gotcha. there is three theories one is it's noise that is that at random we get uh we get extra or we get uh we get more or less of these methylation marks and that causes some kind of damage so on gotcha. and forth second theory is that those things are just a damage response. Actually, they are not causal, but actually, there's damage accumulating exactly. elsewhere, and then the body tries to switch on damage responses, and those things are the things that you are seeing in the, in the, in the methylome. The third one is it's, it's quite it's, it's an interesting one. This one is what some people call the quasi-program theory of aging. Oh, yeah. Um, and what it goes is that all this aging stuff, is not that damage accumulates randomly. It's that your body it wants you to age. That is that- oh, really? that the same kind of processes that take you from being a a child to being an adult also keep pushing you from an adult to actually eventually dying. Uh, This this also goes goes by the name the hyperfunction theory of aging. Um, um, Which which is an interesting thing because if aging is a regulated process, it means that maybe we can switch back these clocks. And just like, if if aging just means that these methyl methyl positions one and and three and, and 10, they are switched off. If, what if you switch them on, what happens? That has not been done yet, but uh, I expect we will see uh, similar experiments to that uh, at some point. We will actually try to c- causally intervene uh, in the epigenome to see what these uh, methylation marks actually mean. Um, some other, there are some other interesting developments in the aging world, like um, pra- uh, this used to go by the name of probiosis, uh, made popularized by the idea of, of, of blood voice, this idea oh, that right. <laughs> You said, "Yeah, the idea yeah, that, that you can if you take young blood and put them into old people, they get somehow better in, in some regards." Right. They, this was done. It, it was done in mice, so you can basically take like an old magic mice and, and literally connect them together. Literally oh. see them together. Like <laughs> oh, no. like, like a uh, science uh, used to be, they're, they're, there's like a long list of, of math science experiments right, that exactly. I've seen that this is not even the craziest <laughs> one I've seen. Uh, there's, there's this crazy experiment like unrelated where they take, there's this is gland called the thymus. This, this gland we have uh, around here in the chest and, 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 mice also have timers, and then this guy started to see oh wh- what if we implant like 24 of his glands in one mouse? they definitely <laughs> have to like put 24 of them to see what happens it's like, <laughs> it's like what are you doing that's awesome that's funny yeah, this, this is what happens when you fund people in the projects they just go mad exactly. and do weird, weird <laughs> exactly. things but it, exactly. it was, really, it was, it was actually useful experiment yeah So and, and we, with the blood thing we actually discovered we started to understand what why is it that this works uh why is yeah. it that that um, both I think um, both taking uh, blood out uh, that is that if you if you are relatively old and you donate blood that's actually seems to have a rejuvenating effect surprisingly it's really perhaps weird. because because it dilutes uh, it dilutes potential these um, proteins and things just accumulate in your blood that you cannot get rid of gotcha. so maybe this old school guy that were about bloodletting and, and, and leeches maybe they, they're out there or something, something. <laughs> that's uh, fascinating and and conversely, others have argued that that maybe you can isolate uh, uh, what's called uh, young blood plasma, plasma factors from like things that mm-hmm. are more abundant in young blood that are not in old blood. And maybe we can use those, um, and then just like figure out what's the, what they are, isolate them, produce them, uh, manufacture them at scale, and then you could just get a simple injection of those. This is very cheap to to produce all these all these procedures are very cheap, and that could potentially um, there's some experiments in mice doing this, and it also looks very promising. Um, Got it. And Yeah. So there's that. Um, um, And I think also something that we'll probably begin to see at some point soon is the idea of a combined intervention. There seems to be more and more calls to do combinations. Um, Got it. um, um, I guess an example would be here, this idea that if you could, suppose you could cure cancer tomorrow, uh, just like all cancer is gone. Yeah. By how much would life expectancy increase?
0: Oh, that's a great question. How much would it?
1: Three or four years, not much. Three or four years. Gotcha. So suppose you could cure cardiovascular disease, the answer is similar. It's three or four years. Three or four well, it's, years. It's, gotcha. just, it's just because all of these diseases tend to occur at, at, at the same time. So Got if it. it's not cancer, it'll be your heart. If it's not your heart, it'll be your lungs. It will, right. So, so basically, um, um, even if, uh, but so, so suppose that you can only die of cancer and of cardiovascular disease. Suppose that if you cure both, you live forever, kind of in in a very simplistic model. But even if that's true, just curing one of them will show very small effects in lifespan. Yet, if you tackle many things at once, you will show you will see synergistic uh, effects. Um, now, this is typically not done in academia because it may be more expensive, it may be difficult, more difficult to disentangle what's going on, and tell a story about the mechanism, and get the paper published. Maybe if your lab right. is doing telomeres, maybe you don't want to do something in a different field and try this blood thing. Right. But I think we will we'll will start to see these combinations. Um, of, of a more broad approach to, to treating disease so for example uh, as a great example if you take arthritis um, osteoarthritis which is produced simply by the, by the mechanical degradation of uh, of cartilage in, in your inner joints so just by by using them right this cartilage is like soft tissue between bones and then it's, it's worse off until you get bone on bone contact yeah which brings pain and arthritis um, and you could to reduce it you could for example reduce inflammation you could try to use some uh, stem cell therapies to try to get the cartilage to grow again uh, that growth is uh, impaired by inflammation uh, yeah. so so maybe if you only do stem cells you don't see much if you only do if you but if you do both maybe you see yeah, an interesting both, effect.
0: effect interesting
1: and, and unfortunately uh, in pharma partly because of the way uh, clinical trials work doing Outside of cancer, outside of oncology, it's very rare for companies to, to do combination of, of interventions. So, for example, if you wanted to this combine, um, um, let's suppose you want to use a senolytic. So, senolytic targets is think called senescent cells, which are thought to be behind various diseases or contribute to various diseases like uh, arthritis or um, or um, uh, macular degeneration in the eye. Yeah, and um, if you um, um, if you wanted to use, uh, use you know, senolytic and also do a uh, cell therapy at the same time, the FDA will tell in your trial you have to have a control with nothing, one arm for the cell therapy, one arm for senolytic, gotcha. and one more arm with both two things. So it, it's a complementary explosion of of costs. Right. So there is the hope that that maybe if if it's clocks, if, if we can produce more clocks and have better methods or better predictors or easier ways to measure. Uh, function and changes of these uh, th- anti-aging therapies without waiting 20 years to see what happens. If we get that, then we can run more and, and cheaper uh, trials. I guess that's one of the other focus areas for the aging field uh, to trying to find uh, uh, biomarkers that are uh, cheaper and easier to, to measure so that we can have more and, and, and cheaper trials.
0: Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. H- how close do you think real in the field clinical therapies are?
1: Um, I mean they're there already. I mean, in the actually last year one of them uh did a phase to trial and failed. Uh so it's they are slowly getting right. here. And there are probably synolytics is one of them. There are a bunch of them in various stages of the pipeline, so they are steadily being pushed. Uh so it they are not pure they are not purely hypothetical. Um and, and, and also if, if all this blood stuff turns out to be actually accurate the, that, that that's sort of, that's an fda approved uh, procedure It's called plasma and uh, so it could be used it, it didn't have to prove safety it's already safe it's just like donating blood right so you can yeah so you could imagine um, i think that that um, in the next maybe 10 20 years we'll see lots of, lots of these therapies coming uh, into the market now this does not mean yet that, that you can take let's say you're 80 year old and then uh, right. put, uh, do like after and after a week it's looking like young again and we are, we are <laughs> We are not there yet, um, but there are, some, there are some very promising things in the, in the pipeline and, and generally in general, in, in, in trying to change the way we think about medicine, to try to think instead of separate diseases as more of a, they actually are very tightly connected and we can actually target this, this nexus of, uh, of disease that we call aging. Mm-hmm.
0: That makes a lot of sense, especially since aging seems to feed into all these other issues, right? You know, your risk for alth- Alzheimer's and dementia and heart disease and cancer all go up as you get older. Yeah. Or
1: are going famous with COVID. If, if you look at uh, excess mortality for COVID, if you look at the right. under 30s, it's like it's as if nothing, mostly as if, as if nothing happened. Uh, yeah. Whereas if you look at the elderly, you see uh, way more uh, mortality rates. Definitely.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Well, Jose, thank you so much for spending the time today. Where can people find you again? Can you plug your blog and where else you'd like to send people?
1: Yeah. So my blog is nintil.com. That's N-I-N-T-I-L.com. And, by, and I'm also very active on, on, on Twitter, on um, Artirkel. Uh, that's um, a r t r k k e l, uh, Or just like search my search name, which is very long. And there's only one person with my name. So you will surely find me. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's very great to be here. Goodbye.
0: All right. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives.